This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. No idea what that is. And that's why we're going to talk to our next guest because he knows. Um, shares of Activision rallying folks 6.4% higher today. Company launching its new battle royale mode for Call of Duty Black Ops 4. Don't I sound cool? Yeah. Um, you I'm, sound like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't. But don't worry, because Matthew Kannerman does. Plays the games, covers it, covers it all. He's our telecom and video game analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. <sighs> Help me out here. So first of all, what was released yesterday that some analysts and some market watchers are saying is behind the run-up in Activision? So, so, today? so today or yesterday came out the beta for— So you don't even know. Today or yesterday? Uh, it, was, it was yesterday it started. <laughs> and it's actually just the beta test of this okay. Battle Royale mode, which is the same type of game as— PUBG or Fortnite. It's every man for themselves or woman or, you know, let's be PC. Gamer. Yeah, every gamer for themselves. Thank you. Um, and, you know, the idea is to, you know, eliminate the competition and be the last person standing and win lots of cool stuff. Um, and it's new for Call of Duty. It's really new for the industry. I mean, PUBG kicked it off. Fortnite copied it and made it better. Um, this really looks like a PUBG killer. And yet uh, today was or yesterday was the first day that PUBG's concurrent users fell below a million in over a year since the game launched on Steam. Wow. So it's already starting to take people away, and it's only in beta. Is it just a case of a new game? And people I th- I think are it's partly, that easily distracted or what? I think it's partly that, but also just watching the game on Twitch, it actually looks like a better version of, of PUBG. It looks more refined. Um, it looks like it's going to be a bit better for a broader audience. PUBG is very hardcore. It's it's really about the expert shooting. This is a little more casual. It's not Fortnite casual. It's going to find a nice middle ground. For Activision, what's great about this is Battle Royale will really improve Call of Duty's presence on PCs. It's always been one of the, if not the highest selling, one of the top selling console games in the world, over 30 million units a year. But by having this Battle Royale mode, it should do a lot better on PC. That's a much higher margin business for them. It's going to be really good for uh, for Activision. So let me ask you this, Matt, because there are a lot of people listening right now probably who don't play these games, but they hear their kids mumbling about them as they look back down to their screen. They tell them to stop talking about it, but they also are increasingly watching their kids watch other people play these games. And they're adults too, obviously, who do this. You mentioned Twitch in passing. Talk to us about this whole movement toward people watching people play video games. I think games as a whole are becoming more social. And with that is all of the elements that come with that. So if you think about professional sports, you know, sports started out as throwing a ball in the backyard. It's now this big spectacle. It's a very social event. It brings people in. People pay to watch the best in the world. And 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 video games and now with the rise of esports is the same thing. You want to watch the best people be the best because they're really good no matter what they're doing. And in this case, it's watching them, you know, play Call of Duty. But um, no, I think the increasing socialization of video games is something we're going to see continue. I think Battle Royale is a great example of that right. because everyone's jumping into a map together, you know, 100 people at a time. And it's actually crazy. You're seeing gaming headset sales fly through the roof. If you mm. look at Turtle Beach, the ticker's here. 
the stock has been flying year to date because of Fortnite. Fortnite is driving headset sales. GameStop, you know, they've had their troubles, but they said headset sales were up over 80% last quarter. And, and simple question, the oh potentially dumb question, that's because people want to talk to each other while they're playing. So exactly. they're teaming up and they're sort of winning together or they're going along and eliminating. And their... they want to stream themselves right. playing it on Twitch and they want to communicate with their viewers on Twitch also. Well, and we had a really interesting story in Bloomberg Business Week magazine a few weeks ago about Twitch, which was part of Amazon, right? Uh, which largely has made its name for all the reasons you in all the ways you've just described Matthew around video games and yet Amazon has big plans for Twitch as a platform well beyond this as well. Yeah, I mean Amazon more broadly has big ambitions in video and they're trying to find the right way to use Twitch as the launch pad for that without taking away what Twitch is. Without because, alienating their core, right? Right, and you don't want to alienate gamers, because I always say that gamers are fickle, and if you change things too much and make it not their favorite, they will quickly move to something else. One stat that uh, the last time we were talking about this that yeah. that I came across, I think we were talking about Fortnite, our friend Eric Gordon, uh, yeah. who we talked to yesterday in a totally different context, sent me an email. Super, The most recent Super Bowl's uh, audience, 74 million. The League of Legends World Championship, 95 million viewers. Holy and it's global. That, that's the important yeah. part about esports viewership. It's yeah. global, and it's also that targeted demographic age group that, that advertisers and sponsors want. It's young. It's global. It actually skews heavily uh, female, which a lot of people think it's video games. It's all male. But roughly about 40% of, of esports enthusiasts are female. Wow. Um, and, and, and so you get a great demographic if you're an advertiser or a sponsor. And it's all digital first, which is extremely lower cost for to, to be able to broadcast this globally. But how quickly can a name like an Activision with one bummer of a game or one bummer of a release, you know, are their numbers impacted? For sure. It's still a hit-driven business. It's increasingly less so. But if you look at EA, they delayed a game for Battlefield Five. Um, they took down their estimates for it. And Joe about Electronic Arts. Yeah, and, and you saw their stock got hammered. Um, it was about a week and a half ago or so. Right. So it's still, you know, a hit-driven business in the sense these big titles have to deliver. But with the way that the companies are adding this in-game content revenue stream, which is much more recurring, they're taking games to subscriptions. They're, they're, they're making it much more recurring and reducing the reliance on the big hits. One quick last question. Demographics. Is it a younger generation that's only playing it or do people start younger and keep on playing? It's funny. Uh, I talked to EA um, when they released their last Star Wars game. And they sold more units than they thought they did because parents and kids were buying it to play together. Old wow. fogies like Jason were kind of buying it. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> too, too old and too fogey for me to play. So. Matt, great stuff as always. Matthew Kannerman, telecom and video game analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. are on the Atlantic coast right now. Hurricane Florence bearing down on the Carolinas. A wary eye probably turned toward that way by folks down in Puerto Rico who just a year ago were suffering uh, a tragedy of their own. Uh, 5,000 to 8,000 small businesses may have closed permanently there. Carol, to bring us more on that, we have Nick Liber. He is a Bloomberg Businessweek contributor his story uh, out today, Puerto Rico small businesses still hurting from Hurricane Maria. He joined us, joins us on the phone here in New York City. Nick, great to be with you. Uh, so what did you find as you started to poke around Puerto Rico? It feels like it's dropped off of a lot of people's radar. I, um, I looked into it 
uh, last fall, and I wanted to see what had happened since I talked to small business owners there and other people who, who live on Puerto Rico. And things are still very difficult for many people. And a lot of businesses, as you said, have closed, and a lot more could close. Um, people, though, are optimistic. I think some people are, are going to be optimistic because they see entrepreneurship as a way to help um, get out of the mess and um, depending on who you talk to, you know, you hear a mix of, of optimism and, and, then, and then worry. Well, you know what's interesting? I think about, Jason, how many times we talk about the importance of the small business economy and small business industry here in the United States, the backbone, really, of the U.S. economy. And I feel like, Nick, that is even more so in Puerto Rico, especially since because of, you know, no longer having those, um, you know, positive or, or welcoming tax policies that brought in a lot of industry to Puerto Rico, that they've maybe had to rely much more on small business to keep that economy going, although it really hasn't been working. As we know, it's a tough economic situation there. But small business is really crucial to helping get Puerto Rico back on track. Yeah, I think it's I think it's um, it's essential to understanding what is going to happen to Puerto Rico. Where are people going to find work? Um, how are you going to generate wealth? Uh, what's going to make young people want to stick around as opposed to move to the mainland? So if you can work for a business, great. If you can start your own business, great. What will people want in order for them to have healthy businesses? Energy costs matter. Um, number of customers obviously matter. Um, disposable income matters. Right now, if you're selling construction materials, if you're selling diesel, I think you're doing very well. I think, if you're, I think many other sectors of the Puerto Rican economy are not doing as well because People are leaving, and um, and things are are just are just not recovering as quickly as people would like. Well, and that migration story is so interesting because as you think about Carol, yeah. the aftermath of a lot of storms that we've seen. You know, I think back to covering Hurricane Katrina mm-hmm. and what happened in New Orleans. The people who could leave left. And many of them, they went. Many went to Atlanta. Many went to Houston. Yeah, they resettled and they didn't come back. And obviously, Puerto Rico uh, faces its own crisis uh, in many ways over that uh, that issue of migration, and obviously counts a lot on tourism as well. You know, Nick, I also wanted to ask you how much of this is a power issue because that's one thing where uh, we have seen a lot of headlines over the last year or so. It took so long for power to come back on. Is there the necessary power and water and just the basic natural resources that people need? I think there's a divide between urban areas and rural areas. Talking to to different people there, rural areas, power is still intermittent. It's not perfect. I, I don't think it was perfect before the storm. So that's an issue. I think a bigger issue for both urban and rural is is um, the migration that, that you just talked about. Um, yeah. And, you know, I talked to a business owner who has been in San Juan for a long time and runs a business incubator. And she was she was pretty positive. She said that there are people who want to start businesses in San Juan and are renting out her incubator space. And she um, I read 
that she had had thought about moving to the mainland and actually had and then turned around and came back because she felt like she wanted to help Puerto Rico right. and she wanted her kids to want to stay in Puerto Rico. So, yeah, so so energy, you know, power and cost of power is is a concern for her. She can't understand why her electricity bill is sometimes over $2,000 a month. Wow. Um, you know, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. But the numbers are staggering your story. About 2,400 businesses closed in the fourth quarter of 2017, and one person is suggesting that possibly 5,000 to 8,000 small business may have closed permanently since the storm, and it could climb to something like 10,000. That's uh, pretty tremendous. Uh, Nick Leiber, thank you for giving us a window and an update on what's going on in Puerto Rico. He's a contributor of Bloomberg Businessweek, uh, joining us on the phone in New York. But I think... You know, you hit it right on the nail. Uh, the idea that electricity has taken so long, like how do you do anything, right, Jason, right. unless that comes back? Yeah, it's a story that's going to continue uh, for ways to come. And one, obviously, a lot of folks keeping an eye on. So Steve Kroll is back with us. He's managing director at Mona's Crispy Heart and Company. And last time we caught up with him... It was at the U.S. Open. Now he's with us in studio. He brought along a friend. Mark Jimbroni is uh, Managing Director at Barrow Hanley. He's also Portfolio Manager, Equity Portfolio Manager. They've got roughly $86 billion in assets under management based in Dallas. Both of them in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. So nice to have you here with us. We're going to talk some markets, but we got to give Kroll a hard time about the Open a nice little bit. Nice call right? at you, the absolutely. Open. You made some calls that, let's just say, if you were managing my portfolio, that way, I would not be so happy with you right now. You wouldn't what be happened? on speed dial well, All anymore. I can say, my two picks that I did from the U.S. Open were ousted at the Open twelve within 12 hours. <laughs> Venus Williams and Carolyn Wozniacki. But today I came here to hear Mark talk about stocks. So let's quickly change <laughs> what, a, what a good politician. I'm not here to talk about that today. I'll wow. talk to you at the next Open. You should about run for team. office. That yeah, was really exactly. well that was done. It's a very good pivot, as they say. All right. So let's pivot to the markets. Mark, it is nice to have you with us. You. Um, you're a value guy. We were talking a little bit about that. There's a story um, that's you know taking a look at 10 years since the financial crisis and some really well-known hedge fund folks. Uh, and the value position or play has not been an easy one. You're a value guy. Yes. <laughs> um, value has been more difficult. And I would say that in general, when the market um, is going up, which I think we've averaged 18% or so since that period of time, value tends to lag. And, and especially with rates going down at the same time, if you think about long duration assets, rates being low, that tends to benefit growth names, which obviously are have much more of the future value coming from cash flows in the future. Discounted back at a lower rate gives more value. So as, as we move to where I think we're in a later inning here of, uh, of the markets, this is when value tends to shine. Clearly, we've been in a very prolonged period of upward movements. But as, as we get a little further along, rates are starting to rise. There's some other concerns we can talk about generally for the market. Um, this is a time where I think you would like to have or should have value in the portfolio as a, as a protector of assets on the downside to give you a nice yield along the way. Um, so we've noticed as the markets sort of, you know, started to have less correlation over the last year or so that, that we're starting to shine a little more relative to our value benchmarks. Not yet relative to the S&P 500, but, um, you know, we think that's that will happen as the market's narrowing and we all know about the FANG stocks, et cetera. But, right. um, you know, we think there's value out there. So when you think about value names that are out there, what jumps to mind? What's a good example of, of one that you think looks good going forward that, that maybe you already own? 
Sure. Uh, we can talk about maybe a group, for example. So we look for good companies down for reasons we can identify and believe are temporary. So let's talk about the crew stocks, for example. Okay. Um, you know, Carnival, Royal, Norwegian. Um, all of those look extremely attractive to us. They have very good growth rates, high levels of return, free cash flow. You guys may know people who have gone on cruises. People like them. They have very high satisfaction rates. Um, they have high repeat rates. Mm-hmm. Um, they're generally a 20 to 25% discount to a value-based alternative. And also, the two highest growing markets within the cruise space is 30-plus and 70-plus. So yeah, if you can get... I've talked to we've talked a lot to the folks over at Carnival and Arnold Donald and what they've been doing sure. to kind of to target a younger generation because the idea of the thinking is of course get them young and then keep them coming back for years. No, no doubt. And- the, these two folks, if you look at Royal Caribbean and Carnival, they both had tremendous runs last year. I mean, Royal was up forty five percent, Carnival was up about twenty seven percent. Different tone this year, and you've been buying into it or no? Yes, much different this year. So, I am surprised how much the stocks tend to move around versus the fundamentals of the business. Yeah. So last year. Yes, a good year after there were some concerns about China the year before. This year, some real concerns about supply growth, which yeah. supply growth is accelerating a little. And there was some concern about what's going to happen with hurricane season this year. Hurricane season was very bad last year. Will they have to discount to get people on board? Um, both of those things are kind of moving to the wayside now as we get further and further along in the year. Right. Pricing, booking, very, very strong. Generally, there's about a six-month window. They call it a booking curve into next year. We're seeing that be very strong again with pricing and occupancy up. So it looks like to me, again, we're going to have a very good year next year fundamentally. And uh, the stocks have sold off over this concern, and they're trading at 10, 11, 12 times earnings, you know, with a market, as we suggested, 16, 17 times. That discount just doesn't make any sense. I want to ask both you guys about China, because if, if I have this right, you were both just at a lunch with Hank Greenberg. China was the topic. We obviously hear so much about China on a near daily basis last week. More tariffs being levied slash threatened. You never exactly know uh, how that's going to go. What's the key insight that people should be taking away about China, Steve? Well, Hank uh, Greenberg spent uh, about an hour and a half at lunch uh, in front of about 27 money managers like Mark. And he uh, also wrote a piece in the op-ed Wall Street Journal two weeks ago saying that when we did these tariffs, and and helped out China and Japan years ago. It was, they were different countries. They were just emerging. Now, obviously, they don't need the help that they have right now, so we're going to adjust. The problem is the head of China has a very stubborn person, and obviously we have a very stubborn person uh, in, in, in Washington. But he's optimistic that they will eventually work out. Uh, he's more worried that China and Russia will become more friendly uh, rather th- if they don't. So... Uh, but he that does China not. Goes he goes more into the arms of Russia, right? And away from right, the right. But um, he he's not overly concerned longer term. Obviously, short term there's a problem. But remember, he's been dealing and working in China since 1917, and then recently uh, re-upped uh, 1975. And he's been there 152 times, so he knows probably wow. more than any mm. any anyone I know. There's actually a story in the Bloomberg. I'm just looking for it now about something that China and Russia were doing together. I can't think of some uh, there investment. Was a, right? A, what was yeah, it? Yeah, arms. You know, summer. Arms, you know, test. Uh, what do they call them? Uh, they were testing together in the South China Sea. Wow. So, as an investor, Mark, what do you do with all that? You got to put um, your money to work. You either in embracing sort of a more robust global China or a more tariff constrained China. What do you do? Um, as Steve said, I walked away encouraged from the lunch. Um, because clearly the market is also certain segments of the market, especially some industrial names, et cetera, have been really waylaid by this tariff discussion, and the numbers get bigger. And I'll say, frankly, as an investor, 
you know, you want to be uh, proactive and thinking about how things may go. Unfortunately, in this particular case, you almost have to be reactive because, you know, it's changing daily and big, big numbers come out and you don't exactly know what they mean until maybe it's past the point. So I do think it's a big concern for the market. Uh, what I what I took away from Hank was that the Chinese are clearly open to discussions, that he thinks um, that there will be some type of resolution. In the meantime, we're going to continue to have this rhetoric around tariffs because it's a way to keep them interested and sort of at the table. But You know, he has certainly embraced China, obviously, but I'm wondering what what's the things that worry him? I mean, is he... Does he think that there's still a lack of transparency, Steve? Does he still think – what are the problems? Just got about 30 seconds. Uh, He definitely worries about Russia siding with them a little bit. The transparency is not as big of a problem. The structure over there is you have a person at the top, but you don't have a vice president and and, and layers of – and so when one person gets uh, uh, promoted or goes off into another area, the people underneath them – uh, aren't familiar with what the people had been saying before. So I wouldn't use, I would say yeah. he's worried about the co- co- connectivity of, of the of the regime. But, uh, you know, longer term, he's he thinks we will come out of it. All right, we're going to run. Hey, guys, thank you so much. Nice to meet you, thank Mark. You, thank you, Mark Jabroni. He's Managing Director, Equity Portfolio Manager at Barrow Hanley, roughly $86 billion in assets under management, based in Dallas, in our New York studio, along with Steve Kroll, Managing Director at Monas Crespi Hart & Company. He is kind of cool. Um, so is Apple. He's super cool. He is super cool. John Ehrlichman we're talking about. Anchor at BNN Bloomberg's The Open. Correspondent for CTV National News. Joining Jason and myself from Toronto. I don't know if you noticed, uh, John Ehrlichman, but social media postings about Apple almost quadrupled. Uh, in the past half hour, this is about 12.30, we put this story out on Bloomberg. Twitter sentiment about Apple is somewhat positive, and we know this is kind of a big week for the company. It is a big week. Yeah, that's a cool indicator. And I guess yeah. uh, even even with no new fancy product that we haven't gotten our hands on before, people just can't get enough of guesstimating what Apple's going to come up with this time around, I guess. Well, wait, I've been told it's about time for me to upgrade my phone, that it's enough of a difference. I didn't do it last time around, but now they've got a, a bigger, super, you know, version. I don't know. We're going to get a bunch well, of new phones, yeah. though, but are they a big deal? Well, look, I mean, uh, obviously Bloomberg uh, employs the best Apple scoop artist on the planet in Mark Gurman, who, who's <laughs> set the stage for what's going to be uh, an interesting event with, yeah, led by these expected three new phones um, uh, in the case of building on on last year at the 10th anniversary event. Yeah, you, you, you might want a little bit more screen, so, so maybe that's something they can build on. It, it does feel like I think we're going to be walking away from the event, talking more about price. I mean, last year going into the event, the question was, cool new phone, are, are you willing to spend at least a 1000 bucks or more on the new iPhone? And, and now, actually, we're, we're going you know, we're going to focus a little bit more on changing the pricing to make those better phones maybe a little bit more affordable. You know, as as, as the business of Apple unfolds, uh, I'm just interested in this world of people who are using the device constantly. Like, you know, maybe they'll update us on how many active Apple devices there are in the world. But most people are working off the idea there are 1.3 billion at this point. Wow. So, you know, well, you know, when we talk about Warren Buffett continuously adding to his Apple stake, um, the numbers that really stand out for me now are the services business. Like Jason and Carol, like six years ago, Apple did not break out the services business. And that's what you pay for things like Apple Music or 
you know, iCloud usage, anything surrounding your uh, Apple device. They broke it out for the first time six years ago. It was $10 billion in annual revenue. As of last year, it was $30 billion. Uh, 30, uh, yeah, thirty billion in annual revenue. So basically, threefold in six years. And I think it's just a reminder that they just have to give you enough of a change in the device. Right. And if last year was getting a little bit more fancy, now it's like saying, "Hey, we got the fancy new devices, and they might be even a little bit more affordable." To get Carol to upgrade and, and keep her in the <laughs> ecosystem, a thousand dollars. Well, and huh. and the ecosystem, I think, is the most important point here. And as I read deeper into this story, I mean, we're talking about. I mean, this is very appealing to a lot of people out there. This Air Power wireless charger that you can simultaneously yes. charge an iPhone and Apple Watch and your AirPods with out plugging them in both the ability to charge them at once i mean i can tell you one of the biggest fights we have in our house is who's charging what at which time and (laughs) did you unplug my phone and why'd you do that and i was only at 62 percent, and you know all these different things new macbook revamped ipad pro a pro focused mac mini the ecosystem does seem to be growing pretty aggressively uh here john it does, and I think that there's a couple of things. I mean, you know, if people are going to take a knock on Apple in, in, in what they control in your life, I think on some levels the living room is still up for grabs, and, and they've, got, yeah. they've got to do battle with, with the likes of Amazon and, and, and probably Google on that front. So maybe they're going to try to make that case. And, gosh, you know, the story that gets me just a little excited, guys, I have to be honest, because mm-hmm. few analysts and, and, and Apple watchers out there like to float it is, does Apple go and, 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 and buy a stake in Tesla? Oh. I mean, if, if, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying tomorrow is the event for that, but right. tomorrow's going to be event. I mean, if we're talking about some upgraded devices that we've all heard of before and making Jason's life at home easier, that's great. But there's a certain lack of sex appeal to that announcement from the company. A lot, you know, if we are going to see that growth part of the story and, 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 and maybe having more dominance, for example, in the car, that's something they could do someday. But yeah. they don't have to do it. Warren Buffett's not investing in Apple because of that. He's, he's investing in it because he knows that people are addicted to their iPhones and their iPads. And, and that's where the money is these days. And that got them to a trillion-dollar valuation. You know, that whole thing with Elon Musk coming out and talking about, I've got the funding to take it public, blah, blah, blah. It really got everybody thinking about, mm, okay, what is the future of Tesla? We've talked about them needing, you know, some kind of cash infusion. How do they do it? But you're right. If you if you just Google, I just Googled Apple Tesla, and there's folks who say there's no chance that Apple's going to buy Tesla. And then, then there's others that said, yeah, now's the time for them to do it. That would be interesting. And Apple certainly has the money to do it, don't they? I just, I just like to throw it out there. And, uh-huh. you know, you, you think about the Beats deal that Apple did and getting, you know, Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine in-house yeah. and, and then allowing the Apple name to take over. I think the, the risk yeah. in something like that is Elon Musk has, has, to some people, become a bit of a risk, right? Like the, the wild card nature of him. But I think if you want to take a knock about where the growth is, maybe you say there's no Tesla opportunity out there. But there's plenty of cash coming Apple's way, and we'll be reminded tomorrow. I love it. John Ehrlichman, anchor for BNN Bloomberg's The Open, correspondent for CTV National News. And I would say, based on those comments, Apple provocateur, Carol. John, great to be with you. Stirring the Apple Tesla pot there just a little bit. I love it. I love it. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Keep driving.
Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Kara Murphy is with us, Chief Investment Officer at United Capital Financial Advisors, over $22 billion in assets under management. Kara joining us uh, from Dallas. Hey, nice to have you here with us, um, Kara. This is an interesting market environment. Uh, we just heard from the president, of course, updating uh, the nation on Hurricane Florence, but uh, also taking some questions from reporters and talking once again about trade and saying that the talks with Canada and uh, with China ongoing uh, at this moment. Tell me, when you pull in the stuff from Washington, what is the stuff that you think that investors really need to pay attention to? What should they filter out? So thanks so much for having me. And, and uh, you know, these trade issues have definitely been generating a lot of questions among our clients. And when we look out on, uh, you know, the overall global market and economic landscape, what's most important are the fundamentals. And, you know, when we look at both the U.S. and our major trading partners, we think that the economic environment is still quite supportive. Um, now, anytime we start to get into potential trade wars, those act as a tax on the economy. And so it's certainly a concern. But if you add up the actual dollars that are impacted by the tariffs that have been enacted so far, it's quite minimal. So the main risk that we see is not so much the, you know, real tax uh, from potential trade wars, but it's the impact on psychology. So we're watching very closely things like CEO confidence or CapEx spending or hiring. These are the types of, you know, real-life knock-on impacts um, that can start to affect the real economy if people get worried about the trade environment. And so far, those remain healthy. We haven't seen any negative impact. And Kara, you know, one of the elements where psychology and and certainly an amount of gamesmanship is playing through is trying to figure out what the Fed does for the balance of the year. September seems like a lock. It feels like people have been vacillating a bit about a December rate hike. Where's your money at this point? And as you analyze this, what what do you think is going to happen? So my best bet is that we do see another rate hike late in the year. Um, I think, you know, the, the, we've started to see CPI overall tick up. It's still at the low end of, you know, the band, the Fed's comfortable band of two to four percent. So we're not in worrisome territory. So I don't think the Fed needs to get overly aggressive, but the really important component of inflation that has started to tick up is wage inflation, um, which so far, which had been very, very muted throughout this cycle and is now starting to pick up. We're continuing to see the labor market conditions tighten. Um, And again, we're not in worrying territory, but there's still plenty of reason for the Fed to kind of push on the brakes a little bit more. Should investors be positioning their portfolios to get ready for some downside momentum, sustained downside momentum? So when we think about where we are in the business cycle, you know, there's been a lot of talk about this being among the longest and strongest bull markets. It's been a very long, you know, economic growth cycle. Um, so we think that, you know, we are later stage in this cycle. We've started to see some risks creep into corporate balance sheets. So leverage has climbed a little bit. Um, we've seen some pushing out on the credit quality curve in the fixed income market. Um, valuations are higher than average, not high. 
high. So again, we don't see any like really immediate warning signs. It's just that there's additional risk in the system where we're not necessarily being paid extra to take it on. So what we're recommending, and I mean, this is really what we always recommend. We recommend that clients with their advisors stress test their portfolios so that you really understand where the risks are. Has your equity allocation increased to a point above where it really should be according to your plan? Do you have maybe more credit risk in your fixed income portfolio than you thought? So these are just the good blocking and tackling that investors should really always be doing. But things like healthcare, utilities, defensive sectors, you guys are seeing more flows or an uptick in the flow of assets into those defensive sectors as of late? Yeah, very recently. So, you know, for most of the cycle, we had had things like tech and consumer discretionary really leading. And very recently, we've started to see a little bit more momentum in some of these um, more defensive sectors. So we've been watching this very closely. We've had a couple of head fakes in this area before through the cycle. So I don't know that, you know, this is a full rotation towards more defensive areas. Um, but it's something that we're watching as potential early signal that we're, you know, reaching the later end of this market cycle. So, Carrie, you are joining us from Dallas, but 17 years ago, you were here in New York. And for those of us who are fortunate enough to see you on LinkedIn, uh, you have an unbelievably powerful first-person essay about that day, your experience that day, and everything uh, that happened afterwards. Tell us about why you wrote that, and as you reflect back, uh, what you take away 17 years later. Yeah, so I, I mean, thank you. I mean, writing that was really part of the therapy process. Um, I, I happened to sit down that very night and just write it out, um, everything that had happened. So I was afraid I would forget. And then, you know, as the days and weeks went on, I kind of added more to it so that I could just help process it. Um, and it was also a way of me connecting with some of the other survivors who I had been with that day uh, to kind of fill in some blanks that I had. And but, but the, so, so it was one thing to kind of put down the detail of everything that happened. But then what took much longer for me to be able to write about and reflect on was the meaning of it all. Um, you know, how did it impact my life? Uh, what was I supposed to learn from it? How did it impact my family? Um, and so those are, you know, much broader existential questions that are not easily answered. That, that took a long time. And I'm sure I'll be answering those questions forever. Um, but, but, but writing about it was certainly helpful. Well, and, you know, when you look back, I mean, they were very, uh, obviously very personal because there was someone very close to you whose life was lost. Yeah, yeah. So my, my cousin, uh, who was just a couple of years older than me, was in the other tower. So I was on the mm. 72nd floor of Tower 2, um, and the second plane landed right above me. Uh, and my cousin was working for Cantor Fitzgerald um, yeah. in the other tower. And, um, you know, he was this shining star. He was this really successful trader. He had two young kids, and, and I used to, you know, run into him in the lobby between the two buildings on occasion. And so it was really fun for me to have somebody who's a little bit older kind of help show me the ropes a bit. Um, and at the time, you know, he had two kids, and I was single, and it just it just didn't seem fair. Um, still doesn't. Um, so it, it was a lot for my family to process. Well, it's it's a really powerful piece of writing, and we're very fortunate that uh, you were able to share it with us and uh, with other folks out there. We will uh, tweet it out to make sure that other people get a chance to look at it. Kara Murphy, 
Chief Investment Officer for United Capital Financial Advisors, overseeing about $22 billion, joining us on the phone from Dallas. Thanks so much for being with us. It's amazing, Carol, as we talk to people, and yeah. obviously sitting here where we do uh, in New York, you know, we talked about it at the top of the show. Um, it, it just touched so many people. Yeah. And, uh, it, it's it's an amazing, well, amazing says, legacy. You know, he was a shining star. There were so many individuals, young, and you know, just really their lives taking off. Um, what a loss! What a loss! All right, everybody, you are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.